Hannah Staver, and this is Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the news you need to sound smart and impress your friends when you go out this weekend. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Ohio Politics Explained, the Let's Get Ready to Rally edition. This week, we're talking about former President Donald Trump's upcoming visit to Ohio and what a probable endorsement of J.D. Vance will mean for that U.S. Senate race. All the education plans introduced by Democrats running for governor, why the Supreme Court rejected another set of legislative maps, and how an election for the board of a public pension system got so, well, ugly. Joining me this week is my fellow running reporter, Laura Bischoff. Welcome back to the show, Laura. Hey, Anna. How's it going? Good. So let's get right to it. Our first topic is the upcoming Trump rally in Delaware. The former president is scheduled to speak on April 23rd at the Delaware County Fairgrounds, and he's expected to make potentially a big announcement, if not there, then before. And that announcement is that he has a candidate in the U.S. Senate race, and it is J.D. Vance. Yeah, that seems to be the the early reports. You know, the fact that it hasn't actually happened yet kind of continues that will he, won't he endorsement tease act that's been going on for a while. And like all the Senate candidates, except for Matt Dolan, are really angling for it and have been calling themselves, you know, pro-Trump, Trump tough, etc. So it's really, this is, this is a very coveted endorsement. And if it goes to Vance, I think that uh, really catapults him. Yeah. In a lot of the public polling, he's kind of been in the mid-teens. He's third, usually behind uh, Josh Mandel and Mike Gibbons. And this could be the thing that he needs because a, a large contingent of Republican voters are still saying they're undecided. Yeah. And let's not forget that Donald Trump won Ohio twice by about eight points. Um, and he still holds a lot of sway over Republican voters in Ohio and across the country. Um, he does like to, to back a winner. And there isn't, like you said, there's, you know, it's a, it's a contentious race and there's no real clear front runner. It's kind of changed hands between Gibbons and, and uh, Mandel, depending on what poll you, you see or believe. So this is kind of interesting that he might pick somebody kind of in the middle. What do you think is going on there? I'm not sure. One of the things I keep coming back to is we've seen a lot of Josh Mandel ads on television. We've seen a ton of Mike Gibbon ads on television. But where we've really seen J.D. Vance is he appears on Fox News a lot. And I kind of wonder if maybe he's been talking directly to the president and if that wasn't a strategy that seems like it's going to pay off for him. Well, that's a strategy that's been employed by other other candidates and other office holders um, over the whole Trump era, and it's very effective. He, you know, the former president does watch that show, watch that channel quite a bit. Yeah, and another little bit of news that's cropped up around this rally at the Delaware County Fairgrounds, which actually is pretty close to my own backyard, is who is attending and who is not attending as a guest. So Jim Renacci, another Republican, really hoping to get Trump's seal of approval. He's trying to unseat Governor Mike DeWine, and he says he will be front and center at the Trump rally, but... DeWine might have other plans? Yes, it is the 200th birthday of Ulysses S. Grant. And the governor has plans to go to some events in the Washington, D.C. area that day. So he might go to the birthday party of another former president instead of this rally in Delaware. Exactly. Okie dokie. So our second topic is also related to the upcoming primary election. It is all about education. So John Cranley, he's Democrat. He hopes to be Ohio's next governor. He's running with State Senator Teresa Fetter. And the two of them have put out a series of proposals on education in the last week or so. One would create a permanent preschool program for four-year-olds across the Buckeye State. And the other would temporarily require schools to offer free summer classes to make up for COVID learning loss. You know, I think education is going to be a really big issue for both Republicans 
Republicans and Democrats this year. And I think in this primary where the two candidates, there's a lot that they agree on. He's really trying to maybe pitch to people like me, suburban moms with kids in school. Yeah, but what what would um, universal pre-K for four-year-olds, what would that cost? Ah, that is the big question. It's hard to say because there isn't uh, an estimate yet. Uh, Teresa Fetter just introduced this bill. It doesn't have like an LSC financial analysis yet. I did some back of the napkin math looking at the Dayton school program. So Dayton has had a preschool program for a number of years, and it looked like it was around $4,000 a student, which if you took 120000 average grade level students, you're looking at a couple hundred million dollars. So it would be a big price tag. It would be ongoing. And that is the question that even people who support preschool have for Fetter and for others is where are we going to get the money? You know, Dayton funded that um, pre-K program with a, a special income tax. And that's, that's something that um, former Mayor Nan Whaley, who's running against John Cranley for the Democratic nomination for governor, you'll hear a lot, a lot from her on that. She's very proud of that program. Yeah. And that's sort of um, the interesting thing. I think Cincinnati has a similar preschool program, which is where John Cranley is from. Um, But yeah, it's not something that we have statewide. We actually don't have statewide kindergarten, like full day kindergarten yet. So not only would you have the expense of full day preschool, but you would also have to get all those districts who don't do full time kindergarten. Right. Although, you know, the advocates for this early childhood education model really say that it it pays off. Um, Kids are, they're better equipped to um, enter kindergarten and to get and get off to a good start and that that, you know, helps taxpayers avoid a lot of cost down the road. And on the flip side, uh, some of the folks I spoke to said that um, one of the cautions is that sometimes being a stay-at-home parent and can be more effective than, say, going to a preschool, depending on what kind of program it is. And obviously, the school choice people just say, like, they want to make sure that this includes all options, that you could keep your kid at home for preschool if that's what you wanted to do, or you could still send them to a private school or this or that or community school, and that it's about finding the best option for your family. So that's their whole concern, is that it would become somehow institutionalized, which is their general complaint about public school generally. How much would the summer school program cost, you know? Ah, that it would be COVID money, so it would be federal dollars. Uh, about $740 million is Cranley's estimate, but none of it would be state dollars. I do think that um, that's probably an appropriate use of COVID money, given yeah. that a lot of the problems that we've had with this widening achievement gap and kids falling behind and, and missing a lot of school it has to do with the pandemic. Yeah, and it wouldn't be permanent. And it's worth noting that a lot of school districts are already doing expanded summer school programs as part of their own COVID learning loss makeup plans. Like this is something that more and more schools are offering. This would just sort of standardize it that you have to make this available to students. I have to say, if Cranley's going for the um, third grader vote, uh, this is not the way to get it to tell everybody (laughs) they get to go to summer school. Yeah, it would be optional for students and teachers to participate. But um, he said he would like to target those like chronically absent students as a way to really get them back in the fold. So our next story is one we've actually told you three times already. The Ohio Supreme Court rejected the fourth set of legislative maps drawn by Republicans. Yes, four. The 4-3 majority cited all the reasons we've gone through before as to why these maps are unconstitutional. And it looks like it could be three federal judges who decide which map we use now. Yeah, I think the they're kind of everybody's kind of waiting on whether or not the federal court is going to have to step in and save Ohio from itself. Yeah, this on this merry-go-round that will not stop, you know. And it's interesting the the four three block. It's it's um, Maureen O'Connor who's a Republican and the three Democrats on the court: uh, Michael Donnelly, Melody Stewart, 
and Jennifer Bruner against uh, Pat Fisher, Pat DeWine, and Sharon Kennedy, who are Republicans. And it's interesting. There's just a lot of conflict um, in how they how they see this issue. But it does seem that April 20th, I think that Secretary of State Frank LaRose said that that's sort of the, the drop dead date in which he has to have. If we want an August 2nd primary. If we want an August 2nd primary, but I'm not sure how much, you know, farther into the future we could push it. Yeah. So it's interesting because the Democrats will blame the Republicans. The Republicans are blaming the court. Some of the people on the court blame the majority. It's just there's a lot of finger pointing going on. Yeah, it's I don't know. I mean, they've drawn four sets of maps. They've been rejected. Now, the federal court is really interested in that they can pick any map they want. Right. Like these three federal judges, there was two independent map makers that spent a couple weeks making a map. And then that got rejected by the commission when the Republicans like pulled a map out of their back pocket and was like, nah, we're not going to use that one. We're going to use this one. That one got rejected. But right, the federal court isn't bound by what's been approved. They, they could even pick the 2011 map and say, just go with that. Yeah, picking the 2011 map would present all sorts of problems in part because the voters, you know, have endorsed reforms since 2011. And um, also there's been a lot of population shifts. But the the federal judge panel, the three judges, they could pick um, they could pick a map that has been rejected by the Ohio Supreme Court as unconstitutional, or they could pick a map that has been rejected by the Ohio Redistricting Commission. And so it's a matter of like, which one is which one is a less bad choice? Yeah, wouldn't it be, it would be so interesting to me if they picked a map that the state Supreme Court has rejected as unconstitutional. Like that, it's just wild to think that the state Supreme Court could say that and then the federal judges could just be like, nah, use that one. Also, I'm waiting to see what kind of reforms are going to come. I mean, everybody pretty much agrees that this process has some shortfalls. <laughs> it did not go as planned. It did not go as planned. I mean, I think that's a charitable way of, of describing it. And um, so there's, I think that there's going to be an effort to put in some more reforms. But then the question is, okay, wh- how are those reforms going to work out? It's um, it's really frustrating. Yeah. Uh, some other states do independent commissions where they basically give it to someone who isn't an elected official at all. I don't know if that's going to come back up again. I know there were some folks in the legislature that were pretty opposed to that idea. And our fourth and final topic is about another surprisingly contentious election issue. And it's happening in a place that you wouldn't think. The state teacher's retirement system of Ohio. We've got angry retirees. We've got accusations of mismanagement. And we have mysterious endorsement issues. And Laura, you've been covering this issue for us. So why don't you walk us through it? Okay, um, STRS Ohio is the it's the pension system for teachers and, and educators across Ohio. They don't contribute to Social Security, so this is their main their main right. thing. It's run by an eleven member board that is a combination of elected by the members and then appointed by statewide officials. And this month there are three incumbents and, and three challengers going for three seats. It's an uncompensated position and it's for a six year term. Now the board, you know, really sets the policy for this system that ha- you know. It's got money invested like $98 billion. It's a lot of money. For like half a million Ohioans. So it's a it's a big job. And uh, they've had a lot of contentious issues within SCRS. Like they ended the cost of living allowance um, a couple of years ago. And they just recently gave like a one-time bump. And the retirees are like, that's not enough. Some of the, re- there's a retiree group that raised a bunch of money for like this deep dive report into investments and, and, um, and fees and the rest of it. It was re- really critical. And then there's a faction on the board that in November pitched an idea of investing up to $65 billion of the $98 billion into a partnership with this startup. And the board was kind of like, nah, you know, that doesn't sound good. 
So now it looks like there's this election fight that maybe maybe they're trying to change, change direction. The, yeah, yeah, change the players on the field, right? And um, this group, this dark money group called Fix My Pension, has a website. They're sending out mass mailings. They're sending out emails. It's unclear who they are and who's backing it. But they're backing the challengers. They're right. They're going for the for the outsiders. Eris Huttress, who was on the Ohio Retirement Study Council for super, or he was the director of the Ohio Retirement Study Council for a super long time, said he thinks you know maybe the end goal is to change the board makeup so that investment pitch gets another chance. Oh, that would be super interesting. So it's, I mean, it's all about the money, right? It's about the money that the retirees get every month. It's about the billions of dollars being invested. It's just you know you don't think of like when you think of a a pension, you think of this like stable traditional thing that like people get, but it turns out there's, there's a lot of drama there. It, it is a stable traditional system. You know, they, these pension systems have been around for decades, paying out benefits and running the, running the, running the whole system. I think over time they've, they've been under pressure to hit their returns, their expected mm. rate of returns. And they've, um, they've invested in some like real estate and private equity and some other kind of more, and they own lumber. Little, they own all kinds of weird stuff. They, they own lots of stuff. But I think that there, there's a bigger piece that's kind of more private equity ended things. And, and a lot of that, the, how much they make and um, what sort of returns there are, there, it's less transparent. Some of that is considered like a trade secret. Mm. So there's a lot of retirees that are like, hey, I want some details on what's going there, on there and they can't provide them. And one more thing before you go. We've got a special election episode of Ohio Politics Explained coming up dedicated entirely to the primary election. So if you've got questions, we want to give you answers. So feel free to email me at astaver, S-T-A-V like Victor, E-R, at dispatch.com. And if you want to learn more about any of the topics we covered, check us out online at any of the newspapers in our network, like marionstar.com. 